Hi, I'm Jess and welcome to the Diversity Project podcast. The Diversity Project was founded in early 2016 when a group of leaders in the investment and savings profession decided to take action to accelerate progress towards a more inclusive culture within the industry. We started this podcast because we wanted to provide a platform for people from all walks of life to share their journeys and how they've navigated their way to where they are now. We're really hoping to encourage people to join the industry or inspire those already in it to be able to achieve their goals. Today, I'll be speaking with Steve Butler. Steve grew up in a happy, middle-class family in the 1970s. After some dismal A-level results, he started his career at 18 as an office junior with AXA Equity and Law. Since then, Steve has worked in financial services and investment management for over 30 years. This includes founding data and analytics firm Camera Data, serving as a managing director of the Punter Southall Group, and most recently, holding a chief executive role with Punter Southall Aspire. This is a UK workplace pensions and finance planning business specialising in retirement services. The question he asks himself is this, would I have got to where I am today if I'd either been black, female, living with a disability, or perhaps all three? The answer being, probably not. That's the driving force behind his passion for creating a more diverse and inclusive industry. He's published two management books on intergenerational teams and age diversity, and most recently published a book about the work of the Diversity Project. We discuss all of this, and I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. Hi, Steve. How are you? Hey, good. Good. Um, thanks for joining us today. That's, uh, yeah, uh, delighted, delighted to be joining you today. Lovely. Now, um, one of your favourite life lesson quotes is Heraclitus, and the Greek philosopher who said, change is the only constant in life. So today I'd like to explore how, how your life reflects these words. Um, I'd love to start with young Steve. So where, where did you grow up? What were you like as a child? Okay, so I was I was born in New Forest. Um, I came from parents and grand, grandparents who hadn't had a university education. So there was there was no pressure from my family to kind of follow uh, a, a university route. Um, I was a very kind of um, fun-loving teenager, spent my time rock climbing, mountaineering, running, canoeing, caving, anything that I could do to get myself outside and, and have fun. Um, ultimately, that led to some pretty dismal O-level results and some even worse A-level results. So um, at the age of 18, uh, my dad sat down with me and said, time to go out to get a job, Steve. And, and despite my protesting and saying, well, I could probably get into a teacher training college if I tried hard, um, his answer was no, you know, now's the, now's the time. So I started to search the local newspapers for, for jobs. Were you searching for anything in particular? Did, going from that, did you have any idea what you, what you could want to do? I guess, I, I, you know, I'm not, uh, I'm not a craftsman or an engineer or anything with my hands. So I kind of knew it had to be an office job. But be, beyond that, um, no, no criteria. Uh, so um, I, I there was an advert in the local paper for a trainee life inspector with a life assurance company called Equity and Law. Uh, I didn't know what a life inspector was. I didn't know what Equity and Law was. Um, mm-hmm. It was kind of based in Southampton, where where I live with my family, and um, I went for an interview. Uh, interviewed by a man who uh, we we bantered a lot about various things and uh, we got on well and at the end of the interview he said yeah you've got you've got the job so it was pretty much the first interview that I'd gone for uh, and pretty much the easiest interview I've ever ever had in my life so either either expectations were very low for what they were recruiting um, or or I had some kind of advantage and and I didn't know at the time but I can look back at that now and say do you know what as a as a white middle class male, you know that that job was uh, was an easy shoe in for me. If you look at so you get the interview, you get the job, you start. If you remember looking around you now, did most people look like you? Sound like you? Do you remember that? 
Yep, I, I, some of my best friends all came from that job because they were exactly they were exactly like me, and and the work environment kind of suited, you know, all of our backgrounds and lifestyles, and and you know we got on fantastically well. So um, it, it is spot on. So obviously, initially, you didn't really know what the role was. What what was it? So you've got the role you well, started. What were you doing? So, uh, a life inspector back in those days, the job was to go and call on independent financial advisors and tell them about the products from the, the life insurance company that you that you worked. So I spent kind of 18 months in the office, you know, learning about the products and, and doing various things. Um, and then one day they said, right, here's your here's your company car, here's your um, mobile telephone or car phone as it was at the time. Um, off you go. Oh, and here's a paper list of contacts that we've got. So you just have to phone them up, get meetings, and, and kind of go and see them. So that was that was the job. And I, I have to say, I found the job re- remarkably easy. Mm-hmm. I was phoning up financial advisors that were again looked very similar to me. Um, I'd go and call on them and, and you know, I engaged with them and we we had a bit of a joke together and I told them some technical stuff and um, they sold the products to their to their clients. And I, and I found within the space of three years, not working particularly hard, I found myself in the top 10 kind of salespeople in that in that company. It, w- it was not a difficult job. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned coming up to that time frame. Why did you decide to leave that role and what did you go on to do next? Well, I think having not been a very ambitious teenager, um, my first job did ignite uh, an ambition in me. And I realised that the guys that were working for the international subsidiaries of life companies had better company cars. So... um, I applied for a job in, in equity and law in, in their division called Equity and Law International, and, and I didn't get the job. So I, I then applied elsewhere in other international companies and um, got a job with Royal Life International. And, and the job there was um, calling on international financial advisors um, and telling them about your life company's products. So um, in that role, my job, my, my area was Latin America. Um, phone up financial advisors from the UK, arrange meetings, and then schedule a three-week trip and, and go and, and see them and, and kind of do, do the same thing, uh, but in uh, different countries across Latin America. You mentioned do the same thing. Was there a level of progression in both roles we've spoken of so far? Or was it literally you were at the same, doing the same thing at the same level? It's, it was very much a relationship job, so it's about... Mm. Engaging, engaging with people. Um, technically, yeah, I had to become more competent about talking about investment products and, and kind of how the investment workings of, of the investment products. Um, but, uh, you know, back at that time, you know, especially operating in an international environment, it wasn't, wasn't heavily regulated. So it was, it was very much a relationship-driven a driven role. And, you know, if I got on well with people, uh, and I could provide them with the service that they required, then they would sell the products of my of my company. Okay. So another sort of three and a half years there, and then you moved on to Scottish Widows. Can you give us yeah, an insight this, to that move? I think this was this was my big break. <laughs> uh, you know, a well-known household name, uh, very prestigious at the time. Um, you know, a proper blue chip company was starting an international division out of Jersey and they wanted someone to kind of lead the sales and marketing um, for for that organisation. So when I joined that business, I joined the project group who were kind of pulling together the the startup business. Um, And then over my period with Scottish Widows, I I built a sales team and a marketing team um, and had my own sales area, which was Africa. And um, you know, over that period, you know, we we raised um, you know close to five billion of assets uh, into the international arm of, of Scottish widows. So you've had about six, maybe seven years' experience at this point. That sounds like quite a big role for your age. Am I mistaken? Um, yeah, it was a small industry at the international mm. side, so that played to my uh, benefit because there wasn't a huge amount of competition in going for these roles. Um, I, I found the um, 
as I've said, the relationship and the engaging with people uh, a very natural part of the part of the job. Um, I enjoyed the travel. You know, I wasn't as scared of hard work. You know, I would schedule my trips. So I was flying into a city, doing five meetings a day, for five days, and, and then flying on to another another city. And and I think a combination of you know good relationship skills and some hard work, you know, proved to to be successful. And 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 almost my age didn't impact me at that at that stage. Were you managing people at this stage? Yeah, so I had a team. By the end, I had a team of eight uh, investment specialists that were covering covering different areas of the world and and the UK. And and that was a for me because they were all older than me. Mm-hmm. Um, all had different experiences um, and that was a huge learning experience to manage up from an age perspective and also to kind of learn the the trade of management um, in a remote working environment because we weren't all in one office they were spread across the the globe I could only bring them together as a team on on you know occasions throughout the year and of course, the technology was the, the good old-fashioned telephone. So um, you know, no, no Zoom, no Zoom, no, <laughs> no no websites or internet. To be fair, um, you know, this was just just telephones and, and the early days of email. How do you think you managed to gain their respect and their trust and build that team environment under those circumstances? I think, and this is me being very. Uh, open and, and honest about myself I think I think I can be very personable and I think one of my traits is that there's I'm honest I, I don't string people along or, or play a game with them I'm always what you see is is what you get and and that's something that's uh done well for me over the over my lifetime in in, in kind of management because people want uh want to work for someone that has integrity has honest and and is authentic enough to kind of share you know, everything about them. Had you had that experience yourself through managers you've reported into, do you think, in in order to gain that understanding of how? Really interesting question because I think the answer to that is no. And I think at that point, my learning about management was learning what bad management was and, and everything I ever did and have ever done as a manager is often the opposite of what I experienced in the early part of my career from the managers that I that I've worked with. And it, it, you know, there are I can't think of a high quality manager that I worked for, you know, throughout that, throughout that period up to that point. Clearly a positive thing if it's shaped you into the <laughs> success. So how long did you spend there? Five years there. Yeah. Um, what was the next step how did that come about so uh and during that period I got married and um had uh four children by the time I was 30 so they came in very quick succession um uh so by the time I was 30 um there were there were other demands on my life Mm -hmm. so um traveling uh you know for six weeks a quarter um, and spending lots of time in Edinburgh and Jersey um, wasn't wasn't the right place to, to be. So I decided that I needed to kind of, although I enjoyed the international travel, I needed to bring that back. Um, and I got a job with uh, a business called CATS. Uh, it's a joint venture between, uh, well, the businesses now are, are Mercer's, uh, Willis Towers, Watson and, and Aon. And it, it did all the performance measurement and investment research and collected data, et cetera, for, for those uh, global investment consulting firms. Um, so my I joined them as their European business development manager. So that restricted my travel to kind of short trips or, or day trips. And, and most of my time was spent working um, at home um, or kind of in the, in the London office, which kind of suited having young children. Uh, because I could be around to walk them to preschool or, or, or whatever was required. I think people find that de- decision quite difficult sometimes when you come to that crossroads because, and some, you know, it, obviously it does have an effect on family life, but do, did you find that you were stepping into a role that was of less seniority? Did you have to look at it and say, this is a decision I'm making for me and my family 
or were you able to look and find roles that were going to give you the same amount of enjoyment and satisfaction? I I I had a very reflective period before I took that job. Mm-hmm. Number of factors driving it. Um, one, I, having worked for large insurance companies up to that point, I decided I wanted to work for a smaller company, and this was a company of a hundred people because um, I wanted to be in a in a business where I could make a, a kind of real difference rather than battle with the politics of a of a larger organization. Um, so that was in, that was important to me. And I, I was also um, moving from a retail uh, investment world into an institutional investment world, which was a new skill set to me. So I saw this mm-hmm. as a ways move to kind of broaden my experience from kind of retail into institutional. Um, and and the and again was you know I reported to the chief executive and I was very much uh, free to kind of build the job and then kind of work the job that worked how it worked best for for me as well as the as well as the business so it was it was the perfect job as far as I was concerned at that point with the the age of my children how did you find the transition from retail to institutional? Because I recruit an institutional space, for example, and I know a lot of people want to make that move, but um, whether or not it's the client that thinks it may be quite difficult or the candidate looking for a role, it'd be interesting to understand your perspective. I don't think many people make the switch. It is, it is very different. Um, and but, but CAPS was kind of the, the bridge between the two because... Uh, it allowed me to get involved in a specialism of performance reporting and investment research um, and kind of learn kind of the institutional side from the inside out rather than kind of straight into selling institutional investment products to institutional investors. That makes sense. And did you enjoy your time there once you started there? I, it was fantastic. Um, however... Um, nine months after I joined, Russell, uh, the business Caps was bought by a business called Russell Mellon, mm-hmm. a US joint venture between uh, Frank Russell and Mellon. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was a very different cultured business. The, the US influence, the scale of the business, again, very different from what I joined. And... Um, you know, they, they they then insisted that I work in the office, in the London office, five days a week. And I, I'd been working three days a week from home. Uh, so uh, I sort of said, look, this this isn't quite right because, you know, you're, you're kind of changing your, my working arrangement here. And they said, well, you know, that's, that's the way it is. You want the job. You're going to have to do this. But I did agree a concession that I'd come into the office early. And bearing in mind, I was living... Um, outside of Winchester. So it was kind of a two-hour commute into the West End. Um, so I, I agreed with them that I could start at half seven in the morning and, and then leave at four. So that it at least got me home in time to see the children before they went to bed. So I started to work that, but I found whenever I got up at four o'clock in the afternoon to leave, that I got a lot of flack and banter from everybody else in the office about working a half day Mm-hmm. Putting in a full day's a full day's work. I was uh, going to ask: Was that completely unusual then for, for any form of flexible work? I think I think it, I think it, I was unaware of it at the time, but mm-hmm. I, I had been in a very fortunate situation with uh, Caps because it was a Leeds based business, and I was based on the south coast, so they they had to let me work from home. Um, once it was owned by Russell Mellon, the you know, the dynamics changed, and and I just very quickly decided that I'd, I got myself back where I was before, back with a large organisation without the flexibility that I required. So um, much to the horror of my wife, I came home one day and said, oh, I've resigned because I can't, I don't want to do this anymore. Um, I think the only way to control my future is to work for myself. So I've resigned and I'm going to set myself up uh, as my own business on Monday. Had you discussed this before, even the prospects? No, we, we, I think I'd, I'd <laughs> spoken about how unhappy I was, but um, I hadn't kind of spoken about how I was going to resolve the situation. Very brave. 
<laughs> it was it was very brave. Um, had you in your mind though? Had you been thinking of this business idea, or was it really a case of I want to make this move and I'll think of the idea after? It was exactly that. I thought I could probably uh, be a consultant. So um, and and I and I did. I set myself up as a marketing consultant, um, and I targeted asset management firms and said, "Look, I can help you with your sales and marketing strategy." Um, on a part-time basis. So if you want to go and develop in a certain region around the world, I've got expertise and, and I can help you with that. And for um, for a period of time, that worked fine. I found that I could earn just as much money in three days a week as I'd previously been make, making in five days a week, which was which was good. But you know, the problem with consulting as a as a one-person business is you you spend all your time delivering work. And um, you know, you, you if you're not delivering work, you're not making money. Mm-hmm. So it becomes a challenge to balance kind of new business development and delivery of of work, which is why consulting firms are always larger firms, I guess. Um, Absolutely. So if you felt so just, that wasn't exactly ticking all the boxes of why you had left to start your well, own business in the first place, what were you? What was I, I decided that I needed to have a business that made money all the time. You know, I actually needed a proper, proper business. Um, and at that point, I had just met a person who was running a small investment consulting business uh, in the institutional space. Um, and he had been trying to develop um, a database for investment manager research data. Mm-hmm. Um, and he'd been collecting data on, on floppy disk, which was the pre-runner. To, uh, to the internet, it's what we stored information on before the internet. And I remember that from school. <laughs> <laughs> it was 2003 and the internet was starting to become a business tool. So he and I decided that we would take the idea that he had, but build it out as a, an online database that asset managers could fill out all the information about their investment products. And then the database could be used by investment consultants and institutional investors to assist them with their manager research and, and due diligence when selecting new investment managers. So, who are you selling that to? Are you selling that to the asset manager? Or selling it to to both. Okay. To both sides needed to kind of be active users of the system to make it work. I took a trip to the US because there were a few companies in the US that were doing this. Mm-hmm. And I partnered with a firm called Investor Force. Um, we white labeled the product for the UK market, which is the question set for the UK market. And then I came back to the UK and started to sell that product to the asset managers and the institutional investors. And then worked my week. So I was three days a week at home, two days a week in the city, calling on asset managers and investors. And How did you sound starting out with? that sort of thing so I imagine as the database grows it becomes slightly easier to sell but starting out was it difficult to yeah get? it was it was chicken it was a lot of chicken and egg mm. to try and make the business look bigger than than it was in the in the early days mm-hmm. um, so this is this is the business I'm talking about here now is camera data mm-hmm. um, so that's that's 18 years ago now that I set that set that business up and for the first kind of Four or five years of that business, it was just me, uh, shoe leather around the city, um, and kind of pulling it, pulling it all together. And I, I reached a certain size, and and then uh, one day I was I was pitching to to one asset manager, a large asset manager, and they said, uh, "Who else is in this business, Steve? Because if we're going to spend money with you, we need to kind of do a risk assessment, and um, we've not seen anyone else, and, and if you're not there." How does it run? And I had to confess at that point that I was the only person. And, and they they actually said, well, we can't use the system because if you get run down by a bus, then, um, you know. There is no system. No <laughs> so I, I realised at that point that if I was to grow the business bigger, I, I needed to scale it. Um, and to do that, I needed capital. And this is when the Punt Group came along. And the Pansalthal Group were a client at the time because they're an investment consulting business. Uh, But they realised the value of what I was doing. So they invested in the business, um, gave me um, the finance to be able to scale it 
-hmm. And a year later, the business was 10 people. And we'd actually been able to, to double the size of the business in that in that first year because of one, the extra people involved, and, and two, the support of the of the Pansalsal Group. So the camera data business now is uh, it's about twenty four people. Um, it's turnover of kind of um, almost four million, um, and has broadened out from just investment research to uh, publishing and events in the institutional space. Um, Is that through the acquiring of other businesses? Yeah, it, it acquired a business called Funds Europe, a trade yeah. and institutional space. It also acquired a business um, called Meridian, which was a specialist mm-hmm. data business in the uh, insurance in the insurance market, Lloyd's insurance market. And, and on I mean, a daily basis, I'm not involved in running that business anymore. So I'm a, I'm a director and mm-hmm. a, a supporter of the team, but uh, it's not not what I do on a day-to-day basis anymore. This is what I wanted to touch on, the team and scaling. So going from someone that had worked as part of a business and seen how things were done to going from a one-man band to having to scale, what are some issues that you faced when bringing on new employees and growing that business to whatever business? The, the biggest challenge you face, and, and, and this is, won't be a challenge of, of just entrepreneurs, it's also a challenge of anyone in a management career as it, at some point, you have to give up the work to someone else to do. Mm-hmm. You always believe you can do it best yourself. Um, and handing handing the responsibility of work on to someone else is always always a challenge. Um, handing on your your baby, which is the business that you started from scratch, is is kind of even even harder. Mm-hmm. But if people are going to learn and flourish. Then, then you have to, and you have to sit on your hands and you have to watch them make mistakes and learn uh, and kind of make their own decisions about how they want to grow the business and improve the business. Mm-hmm. And, and sitting on your hands and keeping quiet is, is sometimes the hardest thing that you can do, but you know in the long run it's best for the development of the people in the team and the, and the development of the business to kind of let go and let them let them run with it. Mm-hmm. Now, you're a huge advocate for diversity in the workplace. Is that something that has always been a focus for you when you started to build your business or is that something you've learnt along the way? Um, I think, again, and some of this is recent realisations, but I, but I realised that because I, I didn't have a degree at, at, uh, at 21 in the, in the workplace and, and it certainly, and, and, and what I have, um, degrees that I have got along the way have certainly not come from Russell Universities or, or, or Oxbridge or whatever. Uh, I've always felt a little bit outside the room uh, and not and not one of the people in the room because I because I don't have that uh, because I don't have that background. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've also become aware that there has there has been many breaks throughout my career that have been because of um, I'm a, I'm a white male. And uh, I wouldn't have had the same advantage and same privilege if, if I hadn't been. So it's 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 in the last few years that that I've realised that I have I've benefited massively in my career because of the lack of diversity in our industry. Um, but I've also had my own frustrations. You know, I've told you the story about you know wanting to be part of my children's life and bringing them up and. Mm-hmm industry not giving me the flexibility to be able to to be able to do that so you know I think combination of all of these coming things coming together have have made me a big supporter of diversity inclusion I know as a business owner and and business manager that that having an inclusive culture is the only way to uh, sustainably grow a business uh, and and trying to do it any other way will will not work mm-hmm. um, and and also in my recent studies you know it, it's, you know I've gone back to university um, and I'm, I'm currently um, researching the the impact of age um, in the workplace and, and and you know people's feelings of age discrimination how that impacts on their productivity and, and the way that they that they work. So um, having a very detailed look at diversity inclusion through a single lens of, of age opens your mind up to, to a range of, of other issues as well. Because Can I ask where that came from, you wanting to look into that more closely? 
What has inspired you to study that? Um, I uh, and and I I think this is probably a, a common story because I've heard other people say the same thing. Um, I read a book called The Hundred Year Life, um, well, you know, which talks about the fact that we've got a changing demographic in our society, and that um, we are going to have to have more older people in the workplace uh, to meet the needs of the changing demographic. And as an individual currently in the workplace, you know heading into that older demographic, I, I need to kind of reinvent myself and I, I need to invest in my education and I need to invest in my health and I need to invest in my career. So, you know, having read that book, uh, it, you know, a light came on and said, yeah, I, I, can't, I can't live a whole career off the back of one set of skills. I need to go and learn other skills. So that's what prompted me to go back to university. Um, and I, I decided that because of the fact that I'm working in a retirement savings business, um, because of the industry we're in, to kind of look at, you know, the changing demographics in the workplace would be a really interesting place to, to research. And that very quickly led me into discrimination. Mm-hmm. And, and one of the things that's stopping people staying in the workplace longer as they, as they age is discrimination and non-inclusive practices. And, and people give up on the workplace. Yeah. Can we go back slightly? So you've sl- stepped away from camera data. You are still a director of the business. So what what was the reason behind that? So um, I've been um, 13 years in the Punsalthal Group. Mm-hmm. And during that time in the Punsalthal Group, um, the group is a very entrepreneurial group. Mm-hmm. Um Ever happy to just let you do one thing and they they always want you to kind of have a go at other things and and I've had various other roles in the Punsalthal group um, I kind of built the um, investment governance and performance reporting teams within a business called PSolve within the within the group which is now the River and Mercantile uh, group um, I uh, helped lead the investment consulting business uh, and grow that before that business was sold to Zaffinity and became XPS. Um, and, and, and after that, and after that um, I was asked if I would lead the DC consulting business, um, which, I, which I started five years ago. And uh, we branded as Punta South or Aspire. Um, and we have actually broadened from a pure DC consulting business into a broad retirement savings business. So the business now does um, DC pension consulting, employee benefit consulting and broking, um, retirement guidance and advice, and holistic financial planning. So that we were able to provide the full service to corporates to help their employees from in through their retirement savings journey and into retirement. So that business is 150 people now. Um, and was when I took over the division, um, it was I think something like 40. So we've so over the last five years we've we've grown that business through acquisition and organic growth. Can I ask again then, going to my previous points, you've worked within a business, you've worked for yourself. You worked the business that grew to what was 24 people, and now you're running a business that is at 150 people. How do you still drive the culture that you believe a firm should have and make the decisions that you would in a smaller business when you're at this level now? Yeah, it, it, in a small business, it's very easy to yeah. culture because you're all sat around a table together and, uh, you know, it, 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 it happens very easily. You know, we've got um, eight offices across the UK, so we're, we're certainly not all sat around one one table. Um, and every time you acquire a business, it, it brings the culture of the business that it had before with it. Mm-hmm. So, so managing culture becomes a significant part of the job of CEO, um, especially in in this sort of growth phase that, that I'm that I'm currently in. Where you know the numbers of people in the business you know change regularly, the infrastructure of the business changes regularly as as we grow. So uh, you know a, a large proportion of my time is focused on managing the culture of the business, and that's about spending time with the managers, 
it's a, it's about um, you know building committees and listening to the the people in the business about what they want it to be and and kind of implementing those those ambitions. So there, there are a number of cross business project groups within our business, which which all add up to shaping the culture. So a people strategy group, uh, a diversity inclusion committee, you know, um, various product committees. You know, and, and all of that comes together to kind of shape the culture across the business. And, and I have to take quite an active part in all of those things. How have you educated yourself on these issues in order to be able to build these different teams and working groups? What have you done to educate yourself on this? Um, I guess I always, my, st- my starting point is always an academic perspective. Uh, you know, I always go to the books first, see see what they see, see what, other people have learnt and and kind of written, um, and and I think it's then about translating that into a language that suits your own business and and is authentic with myself. So and you know then it's just about converting that knowledge into me and my view of the world, and and then and then sharing that regularly across the business and, and involving other people in a lot think- of error. I think in answer to your question. Yeah. Now, what I love, you've obviously taken what you've learned through your career journey and becoming an entrepreneur and then working within a business where you've had to drive and build culture. You, you've translated that into a number of books yourself. Um, I, I'd love us to touch on the first two and then the one that's coming out as well. So I'd love to start with Manage the Gap. So again, you go into describing intergenerational teams what was the inspiration behind this book? And do you want to give listeners a, an overview of what's involved? Yeah, i i was in i was within within my business. I was definitely experiencing conflict in the generations. I had this uh, up and coming uh, millennial generation with a very clear view of what they wanted from the workplace and what they and what they wanted the workplace to be. Uh, and I also had a very established baby boomer generation that had worked in. A, way for a for a period of time and um mixing the two is great because you get the best you get the best of everything but it but it comes with conflict and i think um you know what over the last five years with punter south or aspire with the acquisitions that we've made um and you know the the teams that we've built i've experienced all of that conflict so this was about trying to document my learning experience over the last five years of, of kind of managing that conflict and and some of it is about um understanding the generations and some of it is about actually well, there are aspects of the workplace that we need to change you know we've we've been tied to nine to five five day, days a week in the office for generations it doesn't doesn't have to be that way you know I, I in my career was always fighting that because i wanted more flexibility myself i now have a generation of millennials behind me fighting mm. the same thing so, um when you when you can practically share that and and embed it in a business i think it has huge value and then your older generation says actually that works for me too because um because i've got parents i'm caring for or, or whatever else so I've got a requirement for, for flexibility. So, you know, flexible working is at the heart of uh, of that. And what about the midlife review? So a guide to work, wealth and well-being. Yeah, so that that was a chapter in the first book. And, and I felt didn't do it justice in the first book. It needed its whole its whole own book. And this is about the fact that if if we you, you, you go to university and you do your degree and you build a professional career for yourself and it's not necessarily going to last for 50 years in the workplace. So you, there is a, a need to reinvest in yourself in your midlife. But, but lots of people drift through midlife and, and find themselves unsatisfied in their 50s. So the midlife review is um, about engaging HR directors and business leaders to implement um, a midlife review process within their businesses to encourage their midlife employees to reflect what my future career to look like, what training do I need to invest in myself, 
Um, am I saving enough in my pension for retirement? Probably um, not. <laughs> am I managing my health well enough to continue working into my 70s? You know, and I think it's it's very easy to not think about these things. So um, there's definitely a responsibility on employers to help employees through this phase of their career. As if you're not busy enough with everything we've spoken about and those two books, you're also currently writing one for the Diversity Project. Um, maybe before we even go into the book for the Diversity Project, what's your involvement with the Diversity Project? So Punt South will aspire our, our members. Mm-hmm. Um, and because of that, I joined the, the advisory board. And, and I've been in complete awe at the Diversity Project ever since I've got involved. It's an amazing group of people doing some incredible things. Um, and the more time you spend in the project, you realise how much more there is to do and how much more you need to learn and understand and change within your, within your own business. Um, and that's quite complicated, so this the, the the current book was about trying to present the diversity project in an easy to digest way. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, it's taken me a couple of years to get my head fully around what the diversity project does in all the different areas. Um, so I was attempting to pull together all the different strands in in an easy to digest way, and. And also the diversity project needs to engage more people in the industry. I think there's this huge grassroots following. I think there's some support of some fantastic senior leaders. But if it's really going to change the industry, we need, we need everyone on board. So we've got to be able to reach the middle managers and the, and the mid-level professionals within the industry and, and, and get their hearts and minds uh, into the work of the diversity project. I think, and obviously I've got to have a sneak peek, I think what you've done well has been able to articulate really what the Diversity Project does because I think a lot of people know the Diversity Project and a lot of people I speak to really don't understand what every single work stream does or or how they can get involved or what the mission is behind each work stream. And I think each person that is driving the work stream has a story of their own that makes them passionate and I, I think it's really interesting to see that on paper. I decided the only way to approach this was to interview all the workstream leaders, hear their stories, because they've all got amazing stories about why they're there doing what they're, what they're doing and, and get them to, um, to give the tips about what are, what are the easy wins that you can do. And, that, and that's all mm. I wanted to do. The Diversity Project is a live, living, breathing thing which changes shape every week. So you can only ever do a snapshot of it at a particular moment in time. And it's and whatever you do is always going to be out of date. But I think it's, you know, you've got to start somewhere. Yeah, I was going to say that it's quite the challenge because and when, even when I started working with them, I think there was 12 work streams. And in that time, it's grown to 17. So to write a book that <laughs> um, yeah, would be quite interesting. It, 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 it doesn't cover everyone and apologies. <laughs> It doesn't cover, you know, I had a word count limit and, um, you know, ultimately that's what, uh, that's what limits what you can, what you can include. Yeah. So in terms of what you're seeing in the industry at the moment, obviously you've been involved in the diversity project. Do you yourself see that there is change that is happening or do you think this is something that we're going to have to keep working on and it's going to be very slow moving? What's your opinion? I, I'm I'm massively excited because I, mm-hmm. I industry when I joined the industry um, 30 plus years ago and it's it's a very different place. Um, I fully acknowledge that it's it's so much easier for me with a business of 150 people to hear something and make a change and I I can do it very quickly. Um, if you're running a large global organisation, then that's mm-hmm. hard and that is going to take time. And I think that is the challenge of the diversity project is is supporting those big global companies to help them on their journey and make those change and and keep the subjects live and relevant and 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 the need for change relevant long enough for those companies to be able to make the make the change. But, but a huge huge strides being made and and uh, and lots of change going on. And I think it's quite easy when you're inside the project to get frustrated that things aren't moving quick enough and there's so much to do but if, if you do step back you, you can see big 
big changes. Mm-hmm. Society's changing as well, and, it, and it's 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 running with the shift that's happening in society. You know, um, the George Floyd had a big impact on society, and it energized um, the uh, the ethnicity work stream within the diversity project. Um, so that's that's a positive to to come from that. And there's there's other things going on which are helping sort of drive that that shift as well. I think one of the reasons that we created this podcast too is to ensure that um, you know people wanting to get into the industry can see that there are people from all walks of life in the industry. Do you think that is becoming something that you know if I was a young person finishing university coming into the industry that I would notice more than I think I would from what I assume about the industry? I hope so. I mean, it's very easy to, to, to stereotype the industry and say we're all we're all Oxbridge and and we yeah. like this and we all behave like this, and that's clearly not. Nice. Um, there are you know a broad range of, of people, um, and what's what's great about the diversity project is it's shining a light on those individuals. Mm-hmm. So it is it's clear for people joining the industry that they won't they won't be alone. Mm-hmm. So what's next for you, Steve? <laughs> Anything else? So obviously another book being published. Do you have any other books uh, that are planned? Is there anything else that? I, I, I do, actually. So the, the Diversity Project book, as I said, is a collection of interviews, mm-hmm. which was solely, you know, what I thought was to was to help the diversity project in, in promoting its its mission. When I when I took that book to the publisher, the publisher went, oh, this is great, but it's it's a big promotional piece for the diversity project. It's not <laughs> a book that we were expecting from you. So they asked me to do some very significant rewrites to convert it into the management book that they wanted. Um, which I was quite happy to do, but it took me away from what I originally planned to do. So the Diversity Project book um, is self-published, um, specifically for the purpose that, that, that I've described. Um, later on this year, the book with the rewrites and all the management gump and stuff in it will be published under the title Inclusive Culture, um, which, um, you know, the interviews are in there, but uh, I've wrapped a lot of kind of management stuff around it so it becomes a handbook for people in the industry but also in other industries thinking about how they might want to evolve their organizations and their industries and 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 take learning from the diversity project into other industries you're doing this through the books that you're writing but do you find yourself in a position where you're mentoring other business owners Personally, if people wanted to reach out to you and have conversations with you, is this something that you find yourself doing in a networking capacity? I mean, naturally, within Pansouth Aspire, our, our clients are corporates and mm. SME space. So, you know, we have a, a thousand corporate clients who are CEOs, finance directors, HR directors. So, in my day to day world, I find myself having lots of conversations uh, around diversity inclusion. Uh, with similar SME type businesses to our to ourselves, so um, so yeah, and I, and I think it's the diversity project gives me the confidence to have those conversations. Mm-hmm. You know, I think probably pre diversity project, I would have kept my head down and, and tried to avoid any conversation about diversity inclusion, and, and realized that um, as well as being part of the problem, I'm also part of the solution. And that um, you know, it's it's my responsibility to go and and kind of champion that far and far and wide. Mm-hmm. Now, I know one of the big topics has been flexibility in order to have more family time. Your family has grown in that time to seven it? children. So, <laughs> are you still able to do that? Um, or? So, I just just a, a, a bit of clarity there. So, I, I did remarry, and uh, so I have. Four- <laughs> yeah wife has three children so between us we have seven um and they are all currently between the ages of um uh, 18 and 23 so they're all joining the workplace um or or they're on their university journey so um they've also been an inspiration in the the kind of book writing and and kind of my thinking and i'm, I'm my elder daughters very closely about 
how they're joining the workplace and and their experiences and 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 what are, are the positives and negatives that I can take from their experiences and, and bring into my own business. Yeah, that's interesting to understand. I, I wasn't aware of the ages that they were between. That's certainly very relevant to the work that you're doing. <laughs> In terms of the inspiration that it would provide, right? You're seeing firsthand the struggles that people are going through when looking into what what they want to be doing as a career and how they're going to go about doing that. And six girls. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> so again, I'm I'm kind of seeing their their challenge uh, from from a different perspective to my to my own challenges. So that's that's really interesting too. But they're entering a different workplace. Mm-hmm. I mean, my eldest daughter has a has a physics degree and is now a software engineer. I, you know, that's that's entirely alien to me. That's uh, and and she she's working in a software team where she's as a, as a woman she's not in the minority. That's really interesting to you. I was going to ask the question around that because that's certainly not something uh, you know a few years ago that would have been the case. <laughs> no, exactly. So, I mean, again, all of this is very encouraging about the about the future. Clearly inspired by you, Steve. <laughs> um, look, thank you so much for talking us through your career and um, you know the other work that you're doing to make this a more inclusive industry in general. I think it's incredible, and I think people will be really fascinated to understand what you're doing and maybe how they can implement that into their day to day or their business as well. Thank you for the opportunity to speak. I mean, I I, I think um, the more of this stuff that, that we share, the, the the better it is for for everyone. And um, yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for listening. Um, as you can see, Steve is such an inspirational leader in the investment industry, and I'm very confident that we can be seeing a lot more from him. And I've attached a link to his books in the show notes, as well as his LinkedIn profile page, if you want to follow his future endeavours.